0: Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB One package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. Cambridgesavings.com/slash CSB One.
1: Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. If you've been paying attention to politics for the last quarter century, There's a list of names you know, not because they were public people, but because they were the geniuses behind their presidents. Karl Rove, Dick Morris, David Axelrod, Steve Bannon. Most of these folks don't speak much to the media at the height of their power, because their role is to be the brilliant PR men to understand how to package their candidates and then their presidents for his constituents. Well, around the time that Dick Morris was helping President Clinton, a 103-year-old man named Edward Bernays passed away. Bernays was the guy who had taught America a new and a lot more effective way to do PR. He had been born in 1891 into kind of an unusual family. His uncle was Sigmund Freud. And Bernays could sell pretty much anything, cigarettes, books, soap, and maybe most consequentially, politicians. Larry Tai is the author of The Father of Spin, Edward L. Bernays and the Birth of Public Relations. And he says Bernays thought of himself as the smartest guy around and he knew he could reshape the world.
2: His influence, the influence of public relations and the influence of the combining the art and the science of public relations the way Eddie Bernays did, is everywhere.
1: How did he do it? Well, you could say it was all in the family.
2: What he did in his career was take his uncle's ideas on why people behave the way they did and recraft that behavior to make them act like his clients wanted them to. And whether that was voting for a certain candidate or buying a certain kind of toothpaste, Eddie Bernays knew not just how to sell things, but how to reshape people's whole notion of what they wanted and what they needed.
1: We'll get to politics in a minute, but here's an example of how this rather brilliant ability to manipulate public opinion played out for the young Bernays, who had immigrated from Austria to America when he was an infant.
2: Eddie Bernays was approached at one point in his early career by the leading booksellers in America, and they wanted to sell more books. And in the pre-Eddie Bernays days, the way you would have done that is you would have lowered the price and people would buy more books. To Eddie Bernays, that was vertical straightforward thinking, and he was a lateral thinker. And so what he did was he went to the leading opinion makers in the country, and he asked them a question that he knew the answer to. And the question was, is it a good thing for civilization if people read more books? (laughs) Now, if you find anybody in the world... Including our current president who says that books are bad for civilization, I'd like to meet that person. So he gets nearly a hundred percent of all these leading intellectuals saying books make sense for civilization, and then he goes to the leading home builders and designers of the era, and he convinces them they can strike a blow for civilization by building into every new home and every new apartment built in. Bookshelves. And he knew if he had bookshelves, people weren't going to put cereal boxes there, they were going to put books there. And he convinced, and it was brilliant all the leading booksellers, not just to sell more books one by one, but to have an entire house full of books. And when you go into, I don't know what it's like in your home or apartment, but people love the world that comes and visits to have them think that they're reading all the books on their bookshelves, and so they buy en masse a lot of books. (laughs) And that was the way Eddie Bernays reshaped everything. The world before was the discount. The world after was... Get people to buy books en masse to show that they're literate.
1: Let me actually go back for a minute because um, he was involved in politics in his own day um, with Woodrow Wilson, with Calvin Coolidge. Talk a little bit about his efforts to sell the American people on political ideas. So it's not just that you know he has ramifications today. He he was into that when he was uh, around.
2: So. You asked two questions. One is selling the world on politicians, and the other is on ideas. Let's take politicians for a second. Calvin Coolidge, at the time that he brought in Eddie Bernays, was known as one of the sourest politicians in America. He was somebody that nobody especially liked, and Eddie Bernays understood that, and he decided that he had to come in and sweeten up this guy's personality. So he... Now,
1: hold on. Was, this, was sure. this because somebody just paid him a whole boatload of money? Did he like Calvin Coolidge's policies? What was the motivation here?
2: So the motivation as always with Eddie Bernays was a combination of cash dollars and the ego. And the cash dollars were somebody paid him a lot of money. And the ego was, could he actually take a sitting American president and reshape their image? And this was a perfect kind of Freudian or Bernaysian kind of challenge. So what he did is he brought to Washington a train load, Al Jolson, and a train load of happy celebrities. And he had... Al
1: Jolson, the musician.
2: Al Jolson, the musician. Al Jolson, the great musician and entertainer and guy that people, that Americans thought of as a happy-go-lucky kind of guy, which was exactly the opposite of the way they thought of Calvin Coolidge. And by bringing them into Washington and having them hang out for a day at the White House and bringing in all the right press of the day to see Calvin Coolidge having a great time with Al Jolson He reshaped in a small way that ended up becoming a big way the image of an American president. And he, more importantly, showed that what we think of somebody today doesn't have to be the limitation of what we will think of them tomorrow. And he would have absolutely um, gotten a thrill out of seeing the way that political spin has become so much a part of what we do that every politician does it in an extraordinary way, and never, ever in our history, in a way as effective as taking an entertainer like Donald Trump and putting him in the White House, and that was pure Bernaysian.
1: We will, we will get to that. I, I you, when I said what were his incentives, you mentioned cash and ego. I noticed you did not mention ideology. So this was not like. It wasn't like Calvin Coolidge was promoting policies that were Eddie Bernays's favorite policies,
2: no, so Eddie Bernay's ideology was, shall we say, flexible. And <laughs> he could, in one generation, help convince a generation of American women that didn't smoke cigarettes to smoke cigarettes and have probably a bigger impact on addicting a generation in. The 1920s and 1930s of American women to smoking cigarettes in anybody at any tobacco company. And then 40 years later, he could come in with no ideology and convince a generation of women that it was dangerous to smoke the cigarettes that he had helped addict them to. His ideology was flexible. His ideology was shifting as his clients did and as American public opinion did.
1: And uh, he made tremendous amounts of money from those campaigns. Let's actually listen to a commercial, um, a Lucky Strike commercial, and that is the cigarette that he really is known for helping to push. And, you know, there was this time when it was considered unfeminine, right, to, for women to smoke. But, you know, by around 1930, there was a real desire to tap into an untapped market. And the question was, how do you make a cigarette seem feminine? So we're going to listen to a commercial. This is from the um, 1950s. It starts off with the popular TV announcer, uh, Sandy Becker.
0: Hi, my name is Sandy Becker. You've probably heard me telling about Lucky's Better Taste. Well, here's someone else who's found that Lucky's taste better. America's prettiest golf pro, Miss Alice Bauer.
2: After a hard day out on the golf course and really hard
1: competition, I like to come in and sit down and relax and light up a Lucky. I guess that's a matter of taste, too. But to me, Lucky's taste better. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Karen Miller. I'm talking with Larry Tye, the author of The Father of Spin, Edward Bernays and the Birth of Public Relations. So, so Larry Tye, how did... Edward Bernays take cigarettes and convince women, which he did very successfully, that smoking was a cool thing to do for women.
2: So we get a hint of what he did in that clip that you just played. He brought in an elegant, very female... Star and had her say that cigarettes were okay with her and that they were actually better than okay, that they were relaxing and that they were something good for her to be doing. What he did in one of the most brilliant single strokes of a public relations campaign ever, what he did on Easter Sunday, which was a holiday that suggested sort of freedom, religious freedom, on Fifth Avenue in New York, the boulevard that suggested American style and elegance and sort of the center of American public life, he convinced women to light up on a Sunday, on this Easter Sunday, what he called their torches of freedom. Mm-hmm. So they didn't know that he was working for a tobacco company. They thought they were striking a blow for the early women's liberation movement, and he had them march down Fifth Avenue with every reporter that mattered in the world ready to watch this. And it was called the Torches of Freedom Campaign, and it looked like an effort to strike a blow for women's freedom. And in fact, what it was trying to do is double the size of the market for cigarettes. You had all the men already... Addicted. lots of men in America addicted, but no women smoking cigarettes. And he managed, for the biggest tobacco maker in America, American Tobacco Company, to make cigarettes look like something that were perfectly suited for the stylish woman, which is what everyone in America back then wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And it was extraordinary. And it was, he got this idea, not by just sitting down and thinking it up, he got the idea by going to a guy named Dr. A. A. Brill, who was a disciple of his uncle Sigmund's, and he had said, what is the taboo that is preventing women from lighting up cigarettes? And Brill said that it was seen by them as being unladylike. And so he made it from something negative to something positive. It worked, and we know it worked because we can watch the rates of lung cancer in American women shoot up from that early period where they started first smoking cigarettes when Eddie Bernays brought them into this bad habit.
1: By the way, do do you think that he knew that cigarettes were bad for you? He never smoked.
2: He never smoked. And what his daughters, both of whom live in the Boston area, what his daughters say is that at home, at the same time he was trying to addict a generation of women to smoke cigarettes, he told them to take their mother's cigarettes and crush them like bones and flush them down the toilet. So it was a time when almost everybody in the world could say, we didn't know how dangerous smoking was. Eddie Bernays was one of the few people who did know because all the early evidence that was coming in and was disguised or tossed away by the tobacco companies Eddie Bernays had access to.
1: Hmm. So can you think of an instance or two – I mean, we obviously just went through a presidential campaign, and and presidential campaigns now and maybe always were about selling the people and the ideas in them. But explain to me how you think that Bernays' influence showed up, let's say, in the last election.
2: So it showed up less effectively than she would have liked with everything that Hillary Clinton did. Every focus group that she held – That was Bernays. Every time that she tried to spin her message for a particular audience as she segmented the electorate, this is a message I'm going to take into black America, this is a message I'm going to take into Hispanic America, this is my message for women and trying to show that I am sensitive to women's issues. All of that, the scientific polling, taking the polls and staging events, every one of those things was a direct a direct uh, hand-me-down from Eddie Bernays. But the guy who not only used all those techniques, but who in his heart and soul reflected Bernays' perfect notion of what an entertainer was more than a candidate and what the ultimate spinmeister was, was Donald Trump. He never went off message. He looked like he was appealing to what did Hillary Clinton call them, the deplorables? Mm -hmm. But in fact, he knew just who he was going after. He knew precisely the message he was crafting for them. And he showed, he understood how to make this thing work in a way that probably would have shocked even Eddie Bernays' flexible sense of ideology and of ethics. But it worked incredibly well.
1: So now explain this to me, though, because... Eddie Bernays seems like a very methodical guy. He understood, as you said, he he could segment a population. He understood, OK, if you want to increase people number of people smoking, the number of people buying books, you do this over here and you do this over here and you do this over here. OK. And if Hillary Clinton was doing that, then isn't that to some degree testament to the failure of his ideas? And on the other side, Donald Trump... I mean, it's you know, it's hard to know. It's impossible to know fully what happened behind the scenes. But he did not seem like a scientifically driven candidate like right that he was really, truly understanding what everybody wanted and tailoring his message. Maybe he instinctively understood, but do you know what I mean?
2: Yes. But so you answered your own question at the end when you said the instinct. Hillary Clinton understood the science of all the things, and she would have been a perfect Freudian disciple. What she was missing was the other half of the equation, the art of it. Donald Trump doesn't understand science. He doesn't believe in the science of just about anything, probably including. Uh, psychology and the way people behave the way that they do, but he understood the art in a way that only an artist, you could say maybe a con man or an entertainer would, and he instinctively got up there and performed every time in a way that was appealing beyond the media directly to an audience. In a way, the only evidence I would have thought that we'd be looking at the election and saying, Trump didn't get any of this. He didn't get what Bernays stood for, and yet the outcome of the vote suggested that he got it better than anybody. He understood how to piece it together with precisely what... Eddie Bernays wrote a series of books, and one of his books was called simply Propaganda. And in Eddie Bernays' mind, propaganda was not a bad thing. It was taking and understanding behavior and changing it. Donald Trump understood every hot button to push, how to use propaganda in a way that has redefined, I think, what campaigns will look like and maybe redefined what America will look like. And Eddie Bernays, Eddie Bernays was Jewish. Eddie Bernays grew up hating everything that Adolf Hitler stood for, and yet Eddie Bernays took a certain kind of pride in the fact that on the bookshelves, in the bookshelves of Joseph Goebbels, the propaganda minister for Adolf Hitler, were Eddie Bernays' books on behavior. And he understood that anybody could use this stuff. You could use public relations and public attitude shifting for better and for worse. And he would have watched with some degree of awe and some degree of shock the way Donald Trump used all of his techniques brilliantly.
1: Um, you've pointed out that PR has become more and more integrated into politics. Obviously, Bernays was involved in, in well, politics really in some ways throughout his life. Um, a PR firm was hired uh, to influence America around the first Persian Gulf War that, that started in 1990. Um, you know, as you said, Bernays lived a long time until he was 103, died in 1995. What did he make of how politics had changed some of it as a result of the kind of PR strategies, the kind of sort of commercialism strategies he had brought into the domain of politics.
2: He loved it. He loved it because it showed that he had had an influence. When he started out, he was called, when he died, in a front-page obituary in the New York Times, he was called the father of public relations. That was anytime anybody says the name Eddie Bernays who knows that field, they assume that he was the father. Well, he was a good enough spin guy that, in fact, he wasn't the father, but he was the best practitioner, and so he gave himself the moniker that he wanted. He outlived all of his would-be contestants to that crown, and he loved the fact that from commercial life to political life, taking women to smoking cigarettes to taking America to war he could look and understand the role he personally had played in one campaign after another and he could look at everything that came after and say they are my children I was the father and I can see direct links in terms of how public relations influences everything we do.
1: Larry Ty is the author of The Father of Spin, Edward Bernays and the Birth of Public Relations his most recent book is a biography of Robert Kennedy. Thank you so much for being here.
2: Great to be with you
1: On our website, we've got links to both a compilation of Lucky Strike ads from the 1950s and clips of an interview that Edward Bernays did with journalist and former political advisor Bill Moyers. Here's Bernays talking with Moyers about his work on behalf of Woodrow Wilson after World War I. Woodrow Wilson became a godhead symbol.
0: They believed that he had made the world safe for democracy. Right. They believed that he had fought the war to end all wars. And, and so yet, did I. And you, you, believed, that you believed your own <laughs> propaganda.
1: That's all at innovationhub.org.
0: Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org.
1: Shortly before the financial crisis of 2008, Kabir Sagal took a job he didn't really want it was a job at JP Morgan and on his first day he cried he said he felt like a sellout
3: I wasn't a banker initially I was actually a computer programmer so I was having to like go into like the back office of the investment bank and uh, learn how that functions for a, a good several months so it was a very uh, harrowing dark time of my life but I'm glad I escaped uh, eventually to uh, to the bright side
1: before that escape though the world around him started to unravel.
3: When the market started to crash, it was, you know, first it was f- uh, fascinating, but also, you know, people were full of fear, and the people who were working next to me, veterans of the industry who had been there for 20, sometimes 30 years, were getting laid off. They were crying, they were leaving with their boxes, some uh, office supplies in their, in their hands. And sure, these are well-off people, but, you know, it was very close up and personal uh, what was happening.
1: What that experience did to Sagal was probably not what it would have done for most of us. It made him fascinated by the control that money has over our lives. Sagal would go on to become a vice president at J.P. Morgan and also kind of unexpectedly a Grammy award-winning jazz producer. But his fascination with money prompted him to write a book called Coined, The Rich Life of Money and How Its History Has Shaped Us. And he says, when he tried to figure out why people were crying all around him in 2008 with office supplies in their hands, he discovered it's because money affects us profoundly, our souls, our minds, and our bodies.
3: You know, when they look at brain scans of people who are high on cocaine and people who are about to make money, uh, they find that the brain scans are nearly identical uh, and that shows that sort of money elicits a deeply evolutionary reward circuitry in the brain known as the nucleus accumbens. Um, and so we, we often get very excited with money and we often get very t- depressed when we don't make the money, certainly when, when we're expecting to. And so there's actually genes, you know, genes in our, in our uh, uh, DNA and our g- genetic makeup that determine how we use the money. You look at identical twins. And identical twins who have been separated over a long period of time, they spend money in a similar way. And that's hmm. arguably because of their genetic makeup. And they've done control groups to see if this actually holds up, and that's true. There's so much going on in the brain and in you know our genetic makeup. When it comes to money, we often don't realize uh, that our subconscious is manifesting financial decisions even when we're not really aware of it.
1: Let me... um go back to the idea of you you talked about the the excitement around making money as being kind of uh, similar in some ways to taking cocaine now I think to a lot of people they would think well I mean it is definitely exciting when you are about to make some money but cocaine I mean that that seems like (laughs) that that seems like a very um, are you really that high are you really that excited (laughs) when you're about to make money
3: What elicits enough blood flow to that part of the brain uh, to to, you know to pop on an MRI at a a same level, and it's not just drugs. You know they've taken heterosexual men, and they've shown them pictures of dead bodies, naked women, and money, and it's not even close. It's money that gets the most excitement (laughs) in the brain. So there is something, uh, you know, you need to be able to acquire goods and you know provide for yourself probably before you can reproduce. So it's probably one of the first urges that we have is money and obtaining the calories that we need to survive.
1: What was the evolution of physical money? So moving from coins, you've got gold, you got paper money, how did that unfurl? So
3: the first types of money is probably okay, it's considered proto-money, which is, uh, let's say 10,000 years ago, salt, Tokened money, but not really fully coins, and you then move into.
1: When you uh, say salt, pro- you mean like people were exchanging salt with each other?
3: Yeah, people were trading salt. Okay. I mean, proto proto money is usually agricultural goods, but also some type of bullion. You know, it can be silver. In ancient Mesopotamia, if you look at sort of five thousand years ago, silver bullion was exchanged. Um, but the first types of currency, to be you know frank with you, is actually debt and obligation. What do I mean by that? If you look at ancient Mesopotamia, there was no coins, right? People weren't trading coins, but they were there were financial records of people taking out loans. Mm-hmm. And so this whole idea of credit being the first type of money is very sort of new and this uh, anthropologists have gone back and they've found that, you know, bartering wasn't the pre- predecessor to money. It was actually credit and debt that led to money. It's not until you get to about 530, 545 BC that you have coined money hmm. um, get, gets invented in people say three different places, Lydia, uh, China, India. But it had a very democratizing effect on, on I guess, the population in that when in, in Greece, now poor people could not have to rely on a middleman or a literate middleman to come to the marketplace and use coins.
1: When you uh, think about the societies you've studied and the kind of development of money, what's one society you'd point to where they made a real leap forward or something really interesting happened? when you think about currency and, and trading and, and you know, uh, the development of cash essentially?
3: Well, you know, I traveled, as part of my job at J.P. Morgan, I traveled to many countries, uh, I think over 25 countries for my day job. And I would always sort of uh, spend extra time researching the history uh, and the meaning of money. And one of the places I found that was particularly uh, interesting was in Japan, even modern day Japan, because they take this idea of a gift economy to another level, really. And, you know, when I was in Japan, I was staying with some friends and I got them some a present, uh, some fruit, and they said to me, Kabir, I cannot accept this present. <laughs> and I said, well, why not? And they said, well, because I'll never be able to repay you. I will never be able to repay you. And the word in Japanese, arigato, translates to loosely, is uh, this burden, I can never repay you. Huh. It is too difficult. There's another word, "sumimasen," which means I am so sorry, I cannot repay you. And so this idea of uh, intricate gift giving, they keep an incredible accounting of who owes who down to sort of, uh, you know, a very, very minute detail. And people may say, well, that's silly. That's, you know, that's very intricate. But we also have our peculiarities. Um, you know, Jamie Dimon, looking at the CEO of J.K. Yeah. Morgan, he keeps a list in a suit pocket of people who owe him something. Right, so it's it's a it's a very transactional something we should so, all
1: consider doing,
3: yeah, I mean, we all the thing is we probably already have the list in our head. Right. We all right. know like you know who owes us and <laughs> who owes us a favor, which friend stiffed us, and so when you asked me about you know what I learned about money, wherever I went, I realized that you know money is really a way to honor and pay off debts, and sometimes the social debts are more uh powerful than the financial ones.
1: I'm Kara Miller, and you're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking to Kabir Segal, author of the book "Coined: The Rich Life of Money and How Its History Has Shaped Us." So, in your research and in your work, have you seen things that we do with money that are like kind of crazy, um, but you know we do it with the best of intentions?
3: Well, one thing that I've looked at, and I look at it in my book, is the use of credit cards. And so, when you take out your credit card and spend, um, there's actually less. Um, activation in your anterior insula, um, and that sort of translates to there's less feelings of anxiety. Uh, you don't feel uh, like you're parting with your money as much, and it makes it almost easier to spend your money. And there's been problems with this, you know, like Apple got into had to, had a class action lawsuit because kids were spending money on their parents' iPhones because it sort of saves their credit card. And so when you save your credit card on your phone or when you use credit cards it abstracts the use case of money and you may be more predisposed to spending money that way so one sort of I guess hack would be to use more cash It's I know it's difficult and it's you know more problematic but when people are forced to use cash they uh, they're more conscious of the money exiting them
1: yeah they feel the pain more every time they have to get it out and they see it disappearing from their wallet yeah um it's interesting because Jack Dorsey who uh founded Square which is that little you know white square a lot of people have seen and it can be plugged into your phone or uh into a tablet and and you can run a, like a vendor can run a credit card through it to make it easier for you to pay. Um he's talked about this idea of technology Making in some ways the the pain or the the friction of the purchase fade away, so you just sort of sit there and you you know enjoy your cappuccino and, and you don't sort of worry about how you got it, which sounds like great, maybe, but maybe not so great
3: <laughs> well, it's certainly great in that it helps commerce right in that if you think about an uber ride when you just get into an uber and then you leave and yes. there's no handing of your credit card. It's a very elegant transaction, sure. And that helps the turnstile of the economy. And absolutely, I think moving to a credit-based society helps GDP growth, helps people spend more. But on an indole- individual basis, if you're having financial problems, you may want to sort of pull back for that and, and create reasons for you to uh, not spend so much and uh, you know use credit cards. And this happens to be a very Western feeling. You know, in a lot of places around the world, credit card penetration is not particularly high. Like if you even places like Germany where there's like eighty million people but only ten million credit cards.
1: Whoa. And
3: That's shocking yeah, and that's to it, me.
1: I mean we must have many times the number of credit cards as there are people.
3: We do. I think it's probably three to one, uh three credit cards for every person in America. And uh yeah, I mean in Germany, it's, it's cultural. The word for debt in German is Schuld, which means guilt or sin. Huh. And so there's sort of cultural, you know, conniptions about uh, about putting things on a debit card. And of course, then you have like uh, the, the China and India, which are um, which are just uh, coming up e- economically, and they don't have as much credit card penetration as well. So America is pr- unique in having so much credit card distribution. And what Jack Dorsey says is right, but it's really sort of a very Western and American-centric view of commerce.
1: Are there societies that you've come across that are moneyless societies?
3: Sure, there's some examples of this. I mean, you can look at Burning Man, right? I don't know if that counts as a, as a permanent <laughs> as society a, as a full-on,
1: <laughs> fully formed society. Yeah. That's okay. Give it to me.
3: <laughs> but but for a few days, at least, the, <laughs> these uh, these partiers revel in the. In the desert, and they don't uh, have a, you know, a currency uh, printed or coined currency. It's all it's all the gift economy, and people just do favors for each other. Hmm. And so that's one example of that. Another example is um, is I think in, in the Netherlands they're in they're passing a law, or I think the law already passed, to not accept physical money at restaurants and some clothing stores. That's sort of by edict saying no um, cash or coined money. Hmm. Uh, but but credit still acceptable.
1: And do you know why that is?
3: I think it's also it's expensive to administer money, right? I so see. I mm-hmm. actually I actually spoke at a conference. It was called the Future of Cash conference and these were all the people whose business it is to move cash. They they were like rooting for cash, right? To, to prevail. And, and I was I, I was surprised um, when I got there at what I had signed up for. But it was interesting that there's a lot of money to be made in moving cash, storing it, protecting it, the security systems. Huh. And I know that it's cheaper to administer a credit or an invisible currency than to move all this cash around.
1: Right, right. Kabir Segal is author of the book, Coined, The Rich Life of Money and How Its History Has Shaped Us. He's a former vice president at J.P. Morgan Thank you so much for being here.
3: My pleasure. Great to be here.
1: And if you want to know more about how long people have been in debt to other people, we've got a link on our Facebook page to a talk about 5,000 years of debt. That's at Facebook.com slash Innovation Hub Radio. Also, I mentioned earlier that Kabir Segal, in addition to being a high finance type, is a Grammy Award winning jazz producer. This song is from his album, The Offense of the Drum.
0: Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at MOS.org. And from Destination Medical Center, with Mayo Clinic at its heart, DMC is a strategic economic initiative committed to making Rochester, Minnesota, the World Center for Life Science and Health. Learn more at dmc.mn.
1: Think about public schools, fire stations, police stations. They've all got one thing in common. They house a community service. Not long ago, only about 30 years, another sort of community service sprang up. The World Wide Web. And if you are a child anywhere in the world and you have access to the web, you can take college courses or you can watch YouTube videos about anything from doing origami to learning English. But now there's a tremendous and sometimes scary footprint on the web that comes from big countries and big companies with agendas that are not always clear to us. There is an alternative, though, to the power of these Bigfoots, says scholar and journalist Nathan Schneider. And it's a vision in which we're all owners of the really important web services, the same way that we all support fire departments. Schneider is a co-editor of the book Ours to Hack and to Own, and he's a scholar in residence at the University of Colorado. Nathan, welcome.
4: Thank you so much.
1: So talk about what happened to the web. Um, I mean, it went from being kind of a community service, as I mentioned, to something as it's grown that's dominated by these platforms like Facebook and Twitter. And, And they're more like other big businesses, whether it's banking or food or whatever.
4: In some ways, yes, though I think it's important to recognize the role that these platforms are taking on. The Internet, I think, for a long time has been perceived as a kind of cool toy that we use sometimes uh, to do certain things and increasingly I think what we're recognizing what we're what we have to start recognizing is that that this is a public utility this isn't just the stuff that goes on the railroads, the cargo that that uh, rides in the trains this is the railroads mm-hmm. this is Akin to those uh, structures of the economy that in the late nineteenth century gave birth to antitrust law. Uh, you know, they, they they present such incredible opportunities for monopoly and control uh, that we really need to rethink them. and and actually, for the last hundred fifty years uh, or more, people have been developing more democratic uh, business models for a lot of these kinds of of uh, businesses. You know, a couple examples, uh, for instance, uh, are in, in American agriculture, farmers, especially small family farmers, depend on cooperatives uh, in order to participate in the global economy. These are absolutely vital. They power 75% of the uh, territory of the U.S. Uh, uh, in terms of delivering electricity. And also in media. You know... We're in a moment of incredible media polarization, where media organizations that were once uh, trusted seem to be going off into partisan directions. One organization that hasn't done that is the Associated Press. It has retained a kind of center. And I think that's in large part, actually, because it was founded as a cooperative in 1846 and has Mm. been one ever since.
1: So do you think, um, okay, when you look at the Internet and the trajectory it's taken uh, in the last few decades, do you think something's going to change here? Much like, you know, you talked about the railroads. And at at some point, somebody's going to come in and say, we got to break these companies up like these people are getting too big. They've got too much power. They got too much money. We've got to change things. Or do you think, no, like this is going in a scarier direction where nobody's going to come and break anything up?
4: I think something is happening, you know, and I started seeing this around, you know, 2013, 14 with the rise of that idea of the sharing economy, you know, and people got really into the idea that maybe we can share our cars and, and, and all these sorts of things. And then when people realized, oh, actually, this is just another kind of transactional business model that allows these companies to bypass labor laws and these sorts of things. I think people kind of realized in a new way what's going on here uh, and started realizing the ways in which their lives are being controlled by forces that they they don't really have a say in. And we're seeing this in all sorts of ways, in in the, the way in which authoritarian governments are able to control the Internet, uh, the ways in which large companies are controlling more and more of the stuff that we use. You know, we used to keep a lot of files on our computers and run things locally. Increasingly, we're dependent on the cloud, and we're going to see that even more with the rise of artificial intelligence.
1: Okay, so explain to me then what your vision is, um, and then we can talk about its chances for success.
4: Sure. I, I can start with some examples. For instance, here in Colorado, now, at least on paper, the largest... Taxi company in the state is called Green Taxi Cooperative. You know, these are taxi drivers who, on the one hand, were kind of pushed out by the high rates charged by the conventional taxi companies, but also uh, found themselves getting a raw deal on Uber and Lyft. And they found that the best thing that they could do for themselves, you know, these are not ideologues, these are intensely pragmatic, mostly first generation African immigrants. They found that the best option for them was to create a cooperative and to build an app to reach. Uh, their own customers.
1: And this that's the biggest taxi company in Colorado. Like they do more rides than the conventional like yellow cab or than Uber or whatever
4: well right now the largest in terms of numbers as taxi companies go in terms of the numbers of drivers excuse number me number of drivers okay it demonstrates how uh, 800 drivers in a you know medium sized market uh, uh, the largest block of drivers were willing to actually put in $2000 each as an investment to self fund this company uh, with the support of the communication workers of america And create a different kind of model for themselves
1: I'm just gonna stop with this example for a second because this is a good is a good little case study it's hard for me to believe that a sort of self-funded cooperative taxi company could have the same kind of firepower in terms of like marketing And um, getting the technical support, you know, I mean, obviously having an app and um, doing what Uber does or doing what anybody who does who has this sort of big, huge platform that you have to have a lot of coders working all the time, fixing problems because there are all the time. You're interacting with maps, at least on Uber you are. You know, you might have to have somebody in D.C. lobbying on your behalf. I mean, we're talking like a big corporate structure that benefits a company like Uber. How do you deal with that if you're like a little self-funded cooperative?
4: Well, that's a great question. And and I think uh, to understand that, it's worth looking at the um, examples that have already been built in previous generations of cooperatives. You know, I mentioned earlier the electric cooperatives that, that bring electricity to 75% of the landmass of the United States. They have lobbyists in Washington. They have, you know, R&D arms uh, that do research and development for their cooperatives around the country. And then they have national organizations that, that uh, interact with government and have been a, an incredibly powerful force in American politics over the last century. So there are ways that even uh, networks of local uh, cooperative organizations can reach that kind of scale and be competitive. And when you look at the history of who built the cooperative enterprises that helped shape our country and the world, it's there's an intensely pragmatic rationale that draws people into this kind of business model. You know, it cuts out middlemen left and right. It cuts out those big investors who demand huge profits that are driving inequality right now. You know, it just, it's a kind of business that makes sense it's just one that we've overlooked in the development of the online economy so far
1: you're listening to Innovation Hub I'm Kara Miller talking with Nathan Schneider co-editor of the book ours to hack and to own we're talking about internet cooperatives and whether they're a possibility one fascinating example of a big company that is not quite succeeding I think you could argue it's in some ways uh, failing is Twitter now it's really popular. The president uses it clearly to, uh, to uh, great effect over the last uh, year plus. Um, and yet, the value of its stock has collapsed. It does not seem to be able to figure out, OK, we're, we're popular and we're used and we're looked at, but how do we monetize this? I mean, Facebook figured that out, but, but um, Twitter doesn't seem to have yet. Um, you have argued that the users of Twitter should maybe just buy it and own it cooperatively uh, how, how would that work and like what made you think along those lines? The
4: idea became clear to me when I was watching these debates uh, uh, some time ago about who would buy Twitter. you know would it be Salesforce? would right. it be Disney or Google? And you know I'm a journalist by profession and, and I, I rely on Twitter as an essential utility for my work. So many of us do. And the idea of just kind of sitting by and waiting to see which uh, Wall Street behemoth would, would buy this essential utility up and, and bend it to its will just seemed kind of, kind of sad. You know, at, at the same time, uh, a family member sent me an article about the Green Bay Packers, you know, and just reminded me of this model. You know, uh, it's not, not a cooperative, but it's owned by the people in, in the community where the team plays. Hmm. Um, and it's really interesting. You know, what struck me was looking at a picture of the the Green Bay Packers stadium it's so striking compared to any other stadium you've ever seen it has almost no ads on it just a couple right by the scoreboard and the ticket prices for the people sitting in those seats you know they're significant but they're they're pretty low by league standards, and and that team has managed to stay in a pretty modest-sized city rather than going off to a bigger market.
1: So this is not a billionaire, like a team owned by a billionaire, as so many teams are. Right. Okay.
4: Starting in the 1920s, the team started selling ownership shares to its fans. And as a result, the team has a business model that's aligned to serve the needs of the fans rather than just to produce profits. And when you look at something like Twitter and compare it, say, to a cooperative like the Associated Press, you know. Twitter is something that's providing an incredible service, something that you know people could pay for on one level or another, and there are a lot of different ways that this could that this could play out. You know, Associated Press is a model where the companies that that own it, that um, own shares in it, the media companies that use it, they don't own Associated Press in order to profit from it. They own Associated Press in order to gain a service from it right. and to make sure that it functions the way they need it to. And I think that's actually a more appropriate structure for what Twitter aims to be. You know, CEO Jack Dorsey has referred to it as a people's platform uh, and as a utility. So why not structure it that way?
1: What do you think it would lo- a sort of user-owned Twitter would look like for the people who are part of it?
4: I think in a lot of ways it would look pretty similar. You know, some people imagine like democracy or cooperatives in that involves like kumbaya and 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 decisions by consensus every every week for hours and hours. But you know, I'm a member of a credit union uh, uh, here that's a major mortgage lender in the region. You know, uh, you know, big organization. They don't call me up every few days to ask my opinion on decisions that they're making. No, they have professional managers uh, much as any other company does. The, the difference is that I know that they... Are ultimately accountable to me and my fellow members, not to some outside uh, investors, and that they're going to build uh, uh, products and 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 tools and make decisions that are ultimately pretty much aligned with what I want them to to be doing. And and the same with Twitter. You know, I think a lot of us are really happy with what it is, and we of course like to see um, improvements over time, and that would be great. And and adaptation and innovation, but. I think the key thing is to make sure that this really Im- important essential utility doesn't get swept away from us and captured by uh, a, a small investor class that doesn't actually have the interests of the broader society necessarily in, uh, in mind.
1: If you went ahead, you know, not 30 years, but maybe just 5 or 10, what do you think is really going to happen with this movement of Um, having more cooperatives give me a sense of the way you really see things uh, unfolding
4: well you know as as uh, basically a, a reporter by trade I try not to get into the business of prediction But, again, I think one can look at the legacies that we're building on and what has been built to have some sense of what might be built in the future. You know, for instance, when you look at the history of of the online economy and of the Internet, one of the great stories has been the development of open source software. That. Um, began really at the very beginning, you know, people just trading around code and uh, sharing uh, sharing their programs with each other to improve them, and then they had to build a kind of legal structure that created a counterpower to uh, the big corporate uh, software makers. Initially, companies like IBM and Microsoft uh, uh, were were against uh, open source development and resisted it at every turn and ran commercials against it. And now a lot of them are actually building their business models mm-hmm. around open source software. And and this is the stuff that runs most of the Internet now. And, uh, you know, this stuff has really changed the world in a way that these companies didn't expect. You know, that kind of goes against one's sense of, of who's in charge and how power is taking shape around us. You know, and I think that cooperative models... Their time has come on the internet. There's come a time where people are recognizing that we can't go the way we're going anymore. We can't allow more centralization, more consolidation, and more monopolization. Um, Instead, we need to find models that really live up to the promise of what the internet was supposed to be, a way of connecting people, a way of freeing people, a way of allowing people to more fully participate in the world in which they live.
1: Nathan Schneider is a scholar in residence at the University of Colorado. He's a co-editor of the book, Ours to Hack and to Own. Nathan, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer, Matt Purdy, associate producers, Mark Sollinger, and Caroline Lester, and engineer, Doug Sugarts. We also had production help this week from Matt Toda. You can get our podcast anytime in iTunes, or on SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is
0: Innovation Hub. Innovation Hub is sponsored by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Discover, Care, Believe. And by the Museum of Science in Boston, working to push the boundaries of what's possible. R.I. Public Radio International. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org.